Hello and welcome to the Parkview Podcast. I'm Paul Hank, Investment Analyst at Parkview, and joining me is Usama Himani, CIO at the firm. China's stock market is one of the only major equity indices to have posted a negative return in 2021, reflecting the impact of political and regulatory headwinds that have thrown cold water on investors' enthusiasm for the market this year. In today's podcast, we are joined by George Magnus. George is an independent economist and commentator, a research associate at the China Center at Oxford University and at the School of Oriental and African Studies. Prior to this, he was chief economist and then senior economic advisor at UBS Investment Bank. George's current book, Red Flags, Why She's China is in Jeopardy, was published in September 2018 by the Yale University Press. First of all, George, many thanks for taking the time to talk to us. It's always a real, real treat, a pleasure to to listen to your thoughts. Now, you know, you published a book in 2018 that was prescient in many ways, uh, Red Flags, Why She's China is in Jeopardy, which I really recommend anyone listening to uh, to this podcast to read. Tell us a bit about your concerns about President Xi and the direction in which he is taking China. Uh, well, thanks very much, Osama. Uh, also for the um, for the book plug. Uh, I mean, it's a great question to to start with. You know, particularly because there is a lot that's incredibly topical at the moment. I mean, we've had this, as everybody knows, we've had this kind of blizzard of regulation uh, that's come out of China really this year, and um, um, and a campaign really which has been going on uh, ostensibly since the abruptly cancelled uh, IPO of Ant Financial last November. But actually, um, the kind of, the, the, you know, the foothills of this campaign, to mix metaphors, um, actually go back uh, even further than that. But um, what are my concerns? I mean, my concerns really are that uh, Xi Jinping uh, has basically created and developed a governance model in China, um, which I don't, I don't think it's an understatement to call it totalitarian. I mean, we know it's it's very controlling. It's much more ideological. The campaign, which I referred to just now, is really a very sharp lurch to the left in terms of politics, um, along with um, some very you know, awkward conservative morals, you know, against um, uh, celebrities and um, what they call the kind of sissy um, looking kind of uh, features that a lot of um, Chinese men, you know, are accused of having. Um, It's not particularly friendly towards LBGT um, uh, people of, of disposition. Um, so, yeah, I just, my worry is really that he's, or his leadership of the Communist Party in China is taking the country down a path which will have not very favorable outcomes, either for China or for international relations. Now, this is what you're outlining is, of course, um, you know, it's pretty broad and, and, and it's, it covers both. Uh, economic policy, but but also social policy. Uh, you mentioned the Ant Financial IPO and the blizzard of policies since then. Now, I think for for 
foreign investors who are really looking at this more from you know the financial metrics, what it means for the economy, what it means for the markets. How can how can we start anchoring expectations around what to what to really expect in terms of policy? So, for example, a lot of the regulation that came in regarding tech is coached in this antitrust sort of stuff which you know some some well-known analysts and banks would argue this is normal antitrust stuff and everything will be fine but is this indeed the case is are there underlying principles that can that can help us uh anchor expectations uh around what to what to expect the, the first thing i'd like to kind of highlight really or emphasize is that you know we've seen this huge valuation uh shock in um in uh, a lot of tech, the you know the prices of lots of tech data, um, private tutoring, uh, fintech platforms, and activities, and so on. But actually, for the most part, these are these are companies that are uh, mostly represented in offshore markets. So, for example, mostly in the the Hong Kong uh, tech index, in the uh, Nasdaq Golden Dragon index, and of course, as most Investors will be aware, I'm sure, that the um, the onshore markets like the um, Shanghai Composite, I mean, hasn't exactly been you know on fire, uh, but actually it's held up, you know, okay. It's kind of you know trading range year to date probably hasn't really done anything, but it certainly hasn't performed as badly. So the the composition obviously of these onshore and offshore markets tells us a little bit about you know, where the campaign is directed. It's not directed at uh, banks uh, as such. It's not, which are well represented in the onshore markets. It's not directed yet, I would say, against real estate, although that could come. It's not directed against consumer cyclicals. It's not directed against um, uh, manufacturing, traditional manufacturing and so on. So, um, you know that's the first distinction that we have to make of course that begs the question about what sectors might be next um and that's why i i kind of said yet when it came to real estate and i also would kind of qualify yet um with regards to healthcare and welfare i mean if we think about the parallel uh concept that xi jinping has emphasized along with the antitrust um i mean i think he i mean it goes under the name of antitrust but obviously it's antitrust it's anti-monopoly it's anti um private tutoring it's anti uh working you know uh, sort of uh, awful working conditions for gig workers like in my um it's uh, you know it's a whole kind of gamut of different kinds of antis uh, which are, but they're all private companies, right? They're all private firms. This is not anti-monopoly when it comes to the state sector or to state-owned enterprises. So I think um, if you mix, you know, together, you know, what Xi Jinping is doing or the Communist Party is doing with uh, private companies and common prosperity, which is the the, the, the slogan for equality. Um, which we can assume that that's what it means. Although, you know, again, we'd have to qualify what we think that might mean in China. Then um, there are other sectors that may still be embraced in the regulatory crosshairs, 
because uh, the party thinks it might be able to um, carry its campaign into those areas where it feels that capitalist excess needs to be corrected uh, or cleansed, which I think is what this is all really about. I mean, it is a political campaign. So when people say, well, you know, isn't it a good thing that they are acting on uh, data privacy? Isn't it a good thing that they're acting on um, data storage and usage? Isn't it a good thing that they're acting against frivolous technologies like gaming and video streaming? Isn't it a good thing that they're trying to do something about working conditions for gig workers? Each story taken on its own, the answer is yes, you know, because many of these things are things that we would approve of in liberal leaning democracies in the West and, and, and in Asia indeed. Um, but what we approve or what we think about these things in our own world actually lacks the political context in which these things are being done in China. Um, and I think people should not lose sight of the fact that this is a political campaign and it is designed to steer China very sharply towards the left and um, to punish um, or to excise the excesses of capitalism which have been allowed to develop um, by Chinese kind of or the Communist Party's thinking uh, over the last 20 or 30 years. It's a hugely important moment, actually, and it's not going away in a hurry. Could you take us through your sort of understanding of Xi's key priorities at the moment and also potentially touch on uh, why dual-listed companies, the variable interest entities, are a problem for the Chinese government at the moment? I mean, the priority is, uh, shall we say, the proximate priorities, right, are the 20th Party Congress in November 2022. It feels like it's a long way away, um, but actually in terms of the, the importance and the significance, because remember, this is the the, this is the first party congress that will take place at which there will be no uh, orderly or even any uh, change of leadership. Because normally uh, it would mark the end of Xi Jinping's uh, period in office because uh, he came to power in 2012. His two terms basically are up in 2022. But of course, presidential term limits have been abandoned and um, he will you know, we don't know what will happen in China in, you know, decades to come, but he could remain potentially leader for life um, or president for life. And um, uh, so there will be no kind of change of leadership as far as we know. And so this will be his third term that he's basically pitching for. And he wants um, to establish, or he is establishing um, his rule and his uh, control and Xi Jinping thought everywhere from, you know, schools to universities, to factories, to offices, to um, the whole of society. Uh, so this is his proximate um, um, driver, I think, which is the to, sit, to put in motion this kind of uh, political regime um, well in advance of the, the 20th Party Congress. Um, would he otherwise have been in such a hurry to do things which we now see in 2020 is a moot point? Possibly not, but it's certainly been hastened, I would say, by the combination of the uh, sharp deterioration in relations between China and the United States and the rest of the Western world, should we say, on, on the one hand, 
and also by the consequences of the pandemic uh, on the other. Um, included in which I would say is um, some kind of shocks to the economy and to economic prospects, uh, which will endure you know, far beyond the pandemic. So that's the immediate priority is to, is to put this regime on a stronger footing, well, before 2022, before, of course, of which, you know, we'll also see as things stand, the Winter Olympics in uh, Beijing. And, and uh, of course, that will take a, a chunk of time out of, of the political calendar as well. The ultimate uh, driver, I think, is um, a bit different, actually. I think it's really to do with establishing a more ideological twist in the character of Chinese government and in the um, behavior of the Communist Party, which would involve, which does involve actually aligning the interests of private firms. Um, hitherto, they've been allowed to kind of have a fair degree of freedom, um, but, uh, but I think the idea is to align the interests of private firms with those of the national goals of the Communist Party. So this is a big change. I think the party is probably also increasingly conscious following the census that was published earlier this year of the speed and consequences of China's demographic shift. Um, so the, the birth rate or fertility rate in China, uh, officially it's kind of down to 1.3. Some Chinese analysts think it's even below 1.3 children per woman. Um, and um, so I think the, they may fail, of course, because nobody else has managed to succeed in raising their fertility rate by using uh, kind of economic incentives. but. Um, the idea, I think, is that, or well, certainly the Chinese part, Communist Party believes that inequality um, has a lot to do with this, and they want to try to uh, correct this and um, allow, you know, people to be able to look forward to not having to spend vast amounts of money on their children's education, for example, um, and um, doing better when it comes to income, disposable income in the future. They think this might uh, help to, to change the demographic profile. I think that's very unlikely. Um, and um, I suppose ultimately, you know, there is, uh, I also see some sort of insecurity in um, a lot of these measures, which is um, partly about, I think, concerns about what's going on in the economy. Uh, I mean, everybody knows that you know, the asset manager or the asset um, management company, Huarong, has had to be uh, bailed out. Now there, as we speak, actually, the uh, future or the fate of Evergrande, which is uh, China's second biggest property developer, hangs in the balance. Um, and um, everybody's pretty nervous, I think, uh, certainly outside or in financial markets, so it should be quite nervous about the, the consequences of uh, an Evergrande default or about um, the consequences of um, falling property prices uh, for the economy. So this is a kind of a big deal for them. Um, plus, of course, if you put all of these things together and, you know, the harshest external environment since the Mao era, decoupling, self-reliance, 
Um, no orderly leadership transition now is uh, on the table. Um, I, I think this kind of um, craving for control is and and to kind of batten down the hatches as the uh, naval expression goes, I think uh, are the ultimate drivers as well for, uh, for President Xi Jinping. People also asked me about VIEs, about variable interest rate inter entities. I mean, why is this important? I mean, in, in a sense, there's a curious kind of confluence of interest between the Americans and the Chinese about this. The Americans are obviously threatening to delist Chinese companies because or unless they agree to open their books and allow, um, you know, uh, American auditors to basically look over the work of, uh, or the, 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 the balance sheets of Chinese companies listed in uh, on, on American exchanges. And the Chinese, uh, of course, are very reluctant to have anybody prying into the uh, information and data and uh, balance sheets and corporate and military and political relationships of board members of their companies. So, you know, uh, in a way, um, I mean, I, I don't really know whether the VIEs are going to be retracted, uh, but certainly the uh, it's a possibility. Um, and certainly the Chinese are very wary now and will subject to much greater scrutiny, uh, if not prohibition, um, the IPOs of uh, Chinese companies in future. Now, you know, thinking about this priorities and growth is is certainly an object remains an objective in some areas, uh, even if it may, even if the nature of growth seems to be the the issue here. How can investors participate? Um, you think, and my question really has to do with it. Do you think that President Xi intends to use markets somehow or not at all? Is there a way to align, you know, regardless of one thinks about his priorities and objectives, is there a way to align what he's trying to achieve with what is in the interest of foreign investors? If you ask me for a yes and no answer. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> I think the answer is no, actually. Um, but it's early days, you know, and I, in a way, and I, I certainly, you know, I'm not saying that everybody needs to, you know, sell all their Chinese equity or bond holdings. Um, uh, but I think investors need to be much more aware of what it is that they own and, uh, and much more wary about the prices that they're paying for acquiring Chinese assets um, uh, to the point where they need to be really happy that the price is sufficiently discounted for risk, which is significantly elevated and sometimes very difficult to define. So we, we kind of, you know, in the financial world, we know, we think we know quite a lot about financial risk and how to uh, price that and about how outcomes take place so that our assessment of those risks can be proven to be, you know, right, wrong, or whatever. With political risk and regulatory risk, you just, it's much more difficult to evaluate because it can be completely sudden and abrupt as the uh, 
cancellation of you know the AMP IPO was, for example, or indeed as much of the regulation has been that's affected you know Didi and Prinduoduo and lots of other companies as well. So it's really it, it's a tough call, right? Um, but I think that because um, um, I suppose your question is, you know, is, is there any kind of uh, any kind of area or space where the interests of Communist Party uh, government in China and you know foreign investors can align. Of course, China still wants foreign financial firms to uh, to come to China. They want um, U.S. dollars, obviously. They want the know-how that foreign financial firms can bring to China. Um, they're quite keen to develop um, things like wealth management and. Um, uh, Credit, well, um, asset intermediation. Investment banking is not China's kind of strong point. Uh, so these are things where foreign financial firms uh, obviously can provide um, useful services uh, for, uh, for the financial sector in China and some in, in um, uh, China's economic kind of uh, policy makers, um, certainly Liu He, and uh, People's Bank of China, for example, regulators. I mean, they they are traditionally on the kind of more open and kind of small L liberal wing of of, um, of Chinese economic thinking. So, yes, that's kind of an area where um, where foreign investors should be able to continue to look relatively benignly, and indeed still in manufacturing. I mean, China is. I mean, it has a huge kind of uh, political rhetoric about self-reliance and not and effectively cutting America out of its own supply chains. Um, uh, but for the foreseeable future, uh, China remains very dependent on um, foreign suppliers of advanced technologies, semiconductors, chemicals, um, lots of other products too. I think there are, you know, it's sort of, it's something that, People need to watch very carefully because, and the reason you know that I'm equivocating a little bit about this is because the economic and financial advice givers in China's government do not always align very well, certainly not now, with those others in the government that are giving advice to the president and to the to, who's also the, obviously the head general secretary of the Communist Party on matters of politics, intelligence, and uh, national security. And national security is a big issue for China as it has become for the United States and European countries as well. Um, and it's that kind of intersect, you know, normally we think about national security as being something to do with geography, something to do with borders, something to do with maritime rights, something to do with, you know, armies and navies and what have you. But National security and economic and financial security now have this kind of uh, intersect. It's like a kind of this kind of Venn diagram where the the two types of security overlap um, and are manifest in things like technology, data collection, manipulation, storage, and usage, um, and um, yeah, information flows. And I think that um, that this is why. You know, there's this tension, um, I think, between uh, what, what a lot of people in, in the sort of Chinese government, I imagine, are telling the 
Xi Jinping on the one hand and what others who are more concerned about the politics and the national security on the other. They are in the ascendant. I don't think there's any question about that. Um, and so what I think ought to be in a you know, some sort of alignment of interests uh, between foreign investors and um, China's kind of political and regulatory regime may not hold always uh, in practice. So you mentioned Evergrande with the, the concern sort of shifting away from the equity market somewhat with you know, Alibaba and Didi uh, last year and earlier this year towards some of these type, type of securities, namely in the fixed income space. How do you see the recent developments there having um, knock-on effects in the fixed income market and to the currency? Well, I think, um, yeah, as far as the fixed income debt markets are concerned, I mean, as of today, I think, I haven't really kind of detected, or I say I, I don't think we can really detect any untoward um, movement or disturbances in the interbank market or in the spreads, for example, of uh, other developers, because Evergrande is not the only developer that's in trouble. But, um, but you know, they, it doesn't seem to be particularly, you know, we would know if there were wider disturbances going on. The fact that there aren't uh, or don't so far seem to have been disturbances in other parts of the credit markets, um, it doesn't mean that they can't happen. Um, and they can happen very suddenly, of course. Um, and I think, I don't know, you know, I, I'm, apart from not being licensed to give financial advice, I can only suggest, you know, that uh, investors keep a very close eye on it because, um, I mean, Evergrande, you know, I mean, they might find some kind of political solution for it to kick the ball into touch, as they say in you know, American football or, or even soccer, um, just for a, a short period of time. So they could extend and pretend with the banks to give them, you know, to, to uh, force the banks to actually, you know, just don't call, you know, your, your loans on, on Evergrande now, but, you know, just extend it out to, I don't know, first, second quarter, 2022. Or they could um, arrive at some kind of solution whereby other developers take on some of the empty properties uh, or uncompleted properties, which Evergrande has, um, has on its books against which it's already taken deposits from would-be owners. Um, uh, so there could be some kind of a quid pro quo arrangement for that. Um, so there, there are ways in which you could fix it um, temporarily, because, I mean, my, my kind of core view is I don't think China can afford for Evergrande to go bust, you know, uh, before the 20th Party Congress next year, because the disturbances in the interbank market and in the property market might be, you know, quite awful. Um, but uh, sometimes stranger things have happened and, you know, we could be surprised. Maybe, you know, there might be those that would see Evergrande as a kind of a, an example of capitalistic sex and excess leverage and, you know, needs to be made an example of. Um, there might be, you know, somebody might, some policymakers might want to make an take a risk with it and just say you know let's um you know we'll allow part of part of it to default 
on some liabilities, but keep the rest of it going or find some kind of solution. So it, it's a mess, whatever it is, it's going to be, I think, a kind of a messy outcome um, and question of whether it really can be managed in a, an appropriate way. As and when these things become clearer, of course, markets will react in the way that they will and the PBC will be required, I'm pretty sure, um, to provide more liquidity to uh, arrest any possible contagion. So the, the management of this process is really what's next in line. We, we can't, we know, I'm pretty sure that the, you know, the company can't be really saved as it is. Um, it's a question of, you know, how this uh, company is restructured or, you know, split up um, and, the, and the way in which, you know, that has an impact on, on the interbank market and on uh, credit spreads and on the health, the overall health of the bond market. I mean, there have been other defaults, um, right, you know, in China in the last couple of years. Um, I mean, quite a few, in fact, and then sort of the numbers seem to be rising. Um, certainly the incidence of default is not as big as it is in, you know, other kind of more developed markets, but, um, but it is changing. And so far that process has been managed okay. Um, but uh, yeah, Evergrande is kind of a big elephant really. Maybe maybe one last question to step back. I mean, we've we've talked about you've talked about the priorities in China. We've talked a bit about how you know there are divergent interests between between China and and the West. And I'm really wondering if there are areas where you think that they're likely to continue or could be some enhanced common grounds. Are there are there areas or sectors where where collaboration is possible. And here, you know, one, one area that comes to mind is, 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 of course, climate change, which is a big priority in, in Europe and, and the US. Are there areas where there could be cooperation? Well, I think, um, yeah, if you, you know, if you phrase the question that way, um, I mean, the answer is yes. Uh, so, you know, there is an alignment of interests between Washington and Beijing when it comes to climate change. There is an alignment of interests when it comes to, um, um, you know, international peacekeeping, support for international institutions, um, you know, keeping, well, I would say, you know, ensuring that the kind of the, the, the global economy and global finance operate um, at a kind of, you know, trouble-free um, level, um, uh, public health. I mean, all of these things are areas where you would think that uh, the two major powers could potentially collaborate. Um, and, and for all we know, you know perhaps, perhaps they are, I don't really know. Um, I mean, John Kerry's recent visit to China um, I mean, didn't really get the headlines that I think some people were expecting, which is, you know, some kind of agreement or, um, you know, a major breakthrough of engagement of, you know, two, two sides agreeing to, to collaborate and cooperate. Today is the day that we're recording this podcast. Um, uh, it's reported that President Biden and President Xi Jinping had a phone call uh, for the first time they've spoken probably for six months or so. 
Um, I mean, from what little we know, conversation went on for some time. There wasn't kind of anything said by either side afterwards that suggested that there was any kind of, you know, breakthrough on anything in prospect other than, you know, better to talk together than, you know, not to. Uh, but um, but even in climate change, you know, there's <laughs> inevitably there are kind of politics involved because I think for a while uh, when the Americans walked away from the Paris Climate Accord, I think the Chinese felt that they were in the driving seat. Um, now they kind of feel that, you know, perhaps they feel that with America, you know, back and, in, and engaged and involved in climate change discussions, that this is a bit of a kind of peak for them. Um, so. Uh, I think we can just be hopeful that uh, because there are still very trenchant economic interests that both sides have. I mean, a lot of the kind of political, you know, rhetoric about decoupling and self-reliance that we hear, you know, is really from not from companies. <laughs> it's companies who actually would much rather engage and do business with one another. Than, um, than be involved or have to kind of the, the, the pain of having to sit around and discuss, you know, whose laws and whose regulations they're going to uh, obey and who's they're going to flout. So that's, that's not something which companies are in business to do. So it's quite difficult to peg back uh, the economics of uh, the relationship. But it is happening because, you know, everybody has concerns about supply chains, nobody wants to be hostage to sole source suppliers. And so incrementally, I think this, this is going to continue to happen. I mean, the, the longer that we can, I suppose, the longer that economic ties persist, even if they're weaker than they were before, um, the more likely, I suppose, that, you know, perhaps with time, uh, it'll be possible for America and or the, or the West and China. I don't like using the phrase West because, you know, Japan and Korea, for example, are not in the West. But so I, I use the phrase liberal leaning democracies and can come to some kind of accord about things where they do have common interests. We have to be hopeful that this will happen. But it's quite difficult to predict whether this actually will be the outcome. On that note, thank you very much, George. It's, it's always a real, real pleasure to, to hear your thoughts. Thanks a lot. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions. Clients of Parkview may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.